I, I, found, a, I found a wallet um, outside that had 20 bucks in it. I didn't know what to do, so I was like, I asked myself the question, okay, what would Jesus do? So I turned it into wine. Um, <laughs> oh, you guys, it was funnier than you reacted. Um, I was actually in the library earlier, and I asked the librarian if she had any books on paranoia, and she looked at me and she said, they're behind you. You guys, I have much more of these. I have so many. I have so many of them. It's, so I was actually, I was hanging out with that guy up there when we discovered all these dad jokes. And uh, so then I couldn't get out. I couldn't, I couldn't get out from underneath them and that you have to suffer the consequences. Okay, let's talk about hell. Um, <laughs> hell is hot. No, actually, let's say, we're going to say a prayer because we're going to talk about some serious stuff tonight. Uh, quest, or whatever it is now, time of day. A uh, question for y'all. What? Um, I don't remember what it was. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Father in heaven, we give you praise and glory. Thank you so much for bringing us here to this place. Thank you for giving us the gift of your Son, who is our Savior, who has saved us from the inevitability of life away from you. Father, we know because your son has revealed it that he is the only way to the Father. As hard as that truth is, it is still the truth. We ask you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, to send your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit that has made us into your sons and daughters. Your Holy Spirit that inspires us, guides us, perfects us, and makes us holy. Lord, you are the one who makes us holy. Our works don't make us holy. Our actions don't make us holy. You make us holy. So please, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit to make us holy. In all of that, may you receive the glory as we pray. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. So, um... This is actually, so I started, I started kind of like t talking a little bit in the sense of like, hey, hell, <laughs> but it's actually, I don't know if you know this, relatively serious. Um, in fact, what we're going to talk about this afternoon, what I'm going to talk about this afternoon is, is actually is literally a matter of life and death. Um, and so I want to give the topic the seriousness that it deserves because a lot of times, um, quick question. Is there like a tinging sound you hear a little bit? Okay, so I'm, I imagine that as we continue, someone's gonna fix that. If they don't, I'll move further to the right and maybe that will help. Um, but here's, here's, here's the problem. Here's one of the problems. Uh, in, in former times, the question that people had when it came to life, when it came to living, the question was, um, how do I get to heaven? Like, it was desperate. It was like something that dri drove them. It was, it was when people came up to Jesus and they asked him the question, Master, will many be saved or not? Because they had the idea, they had the idea that actually it would be very difficult to be saved. That was, that was the assumption. The assumption was like, no, actually left to ourselves, left on our own, left alone, we're lost. That was the assumption. That was the, the basic starting point. Left on our own, we're lost. And so they came to Jesus and say, Master, will many be saved or not? 
Now, it's the hard, tar hard part about talking about heaven and hell and purgatory, that's the title of this talk. This is not about dating 101, in case you're wondering, like, shoot, when, did, when is he gonna get to relationships? Not. Um, the hard part is, in our day and age, we flip that around. Where we think that, I mean, here's actually, there's a guy named Christian Smith. Christian Smith is a sociologist, used to be out of University of North Carolina, now he works at Notre Dame. And he did this nationwide study of the beliefs or the faith lives of American adolescents at the time. Now they are young adults. But at the time, he asked people who were, who were uh, mainline Christians, who were evangelical Christians, who were Catholic Christians, who were Jewish, who were atheists. And he realized that even though we all had these different labels, most Americans still believe the exact same thing. And one of the things that most Americans believed is, is this statement, this statement. Good people go to heaven when they die. Like that's just kind of what we all kind of, that's the world in which we live. That's the kind of the, that's what we're living in. That's the culture we have is good people go to heaven when, when they die. And so the idea is like, well, no, why would, the assumption, again, remember when people came to Jesus, they were saying, the assumption was actually, I'm lost. I need Jesus. I need someone. I need a savior. Because left to my own, I'm lost. But right now, we have this assumption that's the exact opposite, which is left to our own, we're fine. Left on our own, we're good. And good people go to heaven when they die. So when I'm going to start talking about, actually, that's not the case. That's actually not true. We don't believe that good people go to heaven when they die. In fact, if you, got, if you died tonight, which actually is possible, <laughs> someone in this room will be dead tonight. I don't know. No. It, it, but it is possible. Because we know this. We know the mortality rate for human beings hovers roughly around 100%. Still, I'm just... <laughs> so the averages are actually pretty good that one of these days is going to be your last day. So on that last day, when you stand before God himself, and if he were to ask you the question, why should I let you in? The question most of us would give, well, until after this talk, hopefully, the answer most Americans would give is, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. And I, I, I imagine that you'd like, I believe that. And I have to ask, that, ask the question when someone says, I'm a good person, is like, uh, really, compared to what? Like, I'm a good person compared to what? Usually, we, I'm a good person like, compared to Stalin. I'm a good person compared to Hitler. I'm a good person compared to, you know, uh, Pol Pot or Mao Zedong. Like, and, but if you actually knew, like, neighbor, Hitler's neighbors, I'm, I'm guessing that Hitler, you know, loved puppies, I'm guessing that Stalin, if his neighbor was like, uh, hey, he's a really good neighbor. Like, he even sometimes mows my lawn, you know? Because we, we think, no, we're just kind of good unless we do something egregious. So the reality, of course, is that um, we're not good. We're not morally good. No, here's a cl clarification. You're created good, meaning you're made in God's image and likeness. But every one of us is wounded, meaning we're born into a state of broken relationship with God. So you are objectively good, but you're also, we are also objectively fallen. Just like people in the back, in the, in the, in the back, people in the back, people in back in the day would realize, left to my own, I'm lost. So if we're going to go to heaven and God says, How should I, why should I let you in? Because I'm good, it's not going to cut it. Because we're not. You might be better than someone next to you, probably better than the person next to you, but but that's not what that's compared to. It's compared to God's goodness. Well, because well, I, um, I follow the commandments. <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, of course, that we follow the commandments we find easy to follow, right? We follow the commandments that 
<laughs> I, I'll tell you this because I'm speaking from personal experience. I can obey every commandment as long as I'm not currently tempted to break it. But we realize that every one of us, like I follow the commandments, I follow the commandments when it's convenient for me. But I'm not, I'm a sinner. I'm actually what they call a sinner. So are you. Well, I, I should go to heaven because I go to Sunday mass. Okay, if you do, then I'll give you that one. But that's still, that's still not the answer. That's not the reason. We go to, we, if we got, Sam, we stood before the Lord God, and he asked us the question, why should I let you in? The answer is because Jesus Christ died for me. And I choose to live for him. Because through a free gift of your grace, God, your son died for me. And because of that, I've chosen to live for him. Why should I let you in? Because I'm good. Ah, buzzer. Why should I let you in? Because I obeyed the commandments. Ah, buzzer. Why should I let you in? Because Jesus Christ died for me. Free gift of grace. And now I've chosen to live for him. That's the only answer. Because here's the reality, of course, is that what does Jesus say in response? In response to the question, Lord, are many going to be saved? Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. He says, wide is the road that leads to hell, and narrow is the road that leads to heaven. Again, in our current day and age, we flip that around and say, actually, you guys, you, if you want to go to hell, you have to work really, really hard. But Jesus, he, sorry, pause, pause button. Everything I want to say is going to say is predicated on the belief that Jesus is God. So if Jesus isn't God, then he's just one of many voices saying, who knows? I don't know. But if Jesus is God, which we believe, amen? Yeah. Like, he's not one of the gods. He's the God, amen? Yeah. That means that Jesus cannot lie. Everything he says about heaven, hell, judgment, death, all those things is 100% true, amen? Yeah. And what does Jesus say about, will many be saved? He says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Now, when I hear that, when I hear that, i got to be honest with you. When I hear that, I'm like, gulp, <laughs> zoinks. <laughs> ruh <-roh. laughs> I Actually, in fact, you know what? I, I know some people who will say that as a result of that, in response to that, they'll say like, well, then I don't know if I, I, don't know if I want to follow this God. If, that, if, it, if it's the narrow road that leads to heaven, then I don't know if I want to follow him. Because I know people who don't follow Jesus, and, and if they're not going to be in heaven, then I don't know if I want to be in heaven. That sounds really noble right now, but it's a bunch of baloney. Don't actually go to hell because someone else might not be choosing heaven. In fact, when Jesus finishes this, after he says, wide is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to salvation, leads to heaven, leads to life. He tries to take the apostles or the disciples' attention off of, what about other people? Because that's what we all go to, right? What about other people? But I don't want to see all these other people. If the road is wide that leads to destruction, what about all of them? And he says, so you. It's, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a singular first-person command. Anyone here speak Spanish? Okay, so if, you, if, if I were to say the word, uh, siéntate, what's that mean? Sit. It doesn't just sit. It means you sit. <laughs> if I said... Kayate, 
you be quiet. <laughs> so Jesus says, strivate. He says, you strive. So, so, so wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to heaven. So he says, so you strive. You strive. Because it's so easy to deflect and to say, well, I don't know. If, I don't know about other people. And Jesus is like, listen, I love other people. I'll take care of them. You strive. So important for us. So important for us. Okay, Jesus is God. He says this. Here's what else he says. Jesus is God. He says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'll go and prepare a place for you, then I'll come back and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. Where I'm going, you know the way. And then Thomas looks at him, Thomas the Apostle. Remember doubting Thomas? Thomas looks and says, Master, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? No, Jesus has just said, can I move around? I'm not sure. Oh, I can move around. Jesus has just said, where I'm going, you know the way. And they say, Master, how do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And Jesus stops, and he looks at Thomas, and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus is God, sounds super restrictive, like what? You only get to heaven through Jesus? But if Jesus is God, it's the truth. Now he said, in my Father's house, many dwelling places, I want to go prepare a place for all of you. But also, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the answer. Everyone in heaven will be there, not because they were a good person. They'll be there because of Jesus. Amen? Everyone in heaven will be there for one reason, because of Jesus. Now, that, again, that can seem super restrictive for us. So let's dive into this whole thing. Um, remember, this morning, this morning at Mass, I was talking about belonging. And if you belong, then you matter, right? Amen? I, we're, I don't know if we're going to play this game, but I keep liking the amen thing. So if you belong, you matter. And here's the crazy thing is God actually, God actually believes you matter. What I mean by that is he believes your choices actually matter. Like whatever you choose, you get. Sometimes, again, we're talking about heaven and hell. Someone will say, well, I can't believe that a good God would send anyone to hell. Okay, I, I agree with you. I also don't believe a good God would send anyone to hell. Because if we have the image that God is like, you get out of here, hell for you, that's not what happens. God lets us have what we've chosen. And in this life, our choices were either choosing heaven or choosing hell. Why? Because God respects our choices. God respects our freedom. God, actually is good. God is actually going to honor our choices. And if I choose heaven, then he'll give me heaven. This is the great thing. He says, strive. Why? Because I've made heaven open. I've made heaven possible through my life, death, and resurrection. And giving you my Holy Spirit, giving you my grace, heaven is accessible to you. It's actually possible. It's not impossible. You, when you get baptized, you start with an A. He's not saying, okay, you start with an F or a zero, and you had to work your way up to an A. When you get baptized, you start with an A. Heaven is 100% accessible to you because God wants you to be there. But he'll give us what we've chosen. And I can say, God, I want to choose you. Please help me. And he will. Or we can say, God, I'd rather not. 
I'd rather not have you. Okay, that's the definition of hell. Not God, a.k.a. hell. So I can either say, Father, thy will be done, and it is. What's his will? What is the Father's will for you? Heaven. Or I can say, my will be done. And what am I choosing? Hell. And at that point you say, well, I don't believe anyone would actually choose that. People choose that all the time. You know what sin is? Here's how I define sin. Define. Here's how I define sin. I don't know how to talk. Okay. Here's how I define sin. Sin is um, when I say to God, God, I know what you want. I don't care. I want what I want. Again, sometimes we think that sin is like this. Oh, God, I defy you. No. Sin can also, maybe, but also can be, God, I know what you want, but I want what I want. God, I know what you want for me. It's great, cool, neat, awesome. I think that's really good, but I want what I want. I'm going to tell a little story that's a little bit personal um, because we... uh, We've been on a mission trip um, for all week, and unfortunately, and I, I say this in a way that I want to honor the people, on the second day of our mission trip, we had to send about half a dozen kids home. And it was super painful for every one of the adults. But on the first day, we spelled out the rules very, very, very clear about if you do X, then we have to, and we find out we have to call your parents, and they have to pick you up, and they have to go home, and your trip is over. And like within hours of delivering this message, they chose to do that thing. And it was so crazy because all of the adults, I've told this to our, our students who remained, like every one of the adults like cried, like wept over this because we didn't want to send them home. At one point though, one of the young men, he was talking to one of our priests and he said, uh, you know, he's like, well, you're kicking me out. And he knows the priest really well and the priest knows him really well. He says, well, you're kicking me out. And the priest looked and said, wait, no one's kicking you out. You chose to go home. And this is really important. God's not kicking you to hell. When I say, God, I want to do what I want to do, I'm choosing hell. Does that make sense? And so if God lets me have what I've chosen, is he being unfair? No. He's actually honoring my decision. He's actually honoring the relationship. You know, there's there's a parable in the Gospels that Jesus tells. It's a parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. Does anyone know that parable of wise and foolish virgins? Here's how it goes down. So there's these wise virgins and these foolish virgins, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, but the bridegroom is long delayed. The wise virgins had extra oil, and the foolish virgins didn't have enough oil. So when the bridegroom finally shows up, they're like, the bridegroom is here, and the wise virgins have a bunch of oil, and the foolish virgins have no oil. So the foolish ones say, hey, give us some of your oil. And they say, no, get some of your own. And I always thought, that's rude. (laughs) Because my mom taught me to share. (laughs) But that wasn't the point of the gospel. It wasn't the point of the parable. It was a parable of sharing. It was this. It was the oil represents something. What the oil represents is the relationship with God. Your oil represents your relationship with God. I can't share that with you. Like, I can't share my closeness with Jesus with you. Just like, um, like if you're someone who's really, really fit, you exercise a lot, and someone who's not fit doesn't exercise, is like, hey, give me some of your fitness. And the person's like, no. Like, why don't you share some of your fitness with me? Like, because I literally can't. The same thing is true with these wise and foolish virgins. They had a relationship with Jesus. In fact, when he shows up, 
The wise ones go in, and the foolish ones are at the door, and they're knocking on the door, and Jesus calls out, who are you? And they say, let us in. And he says, I never knew you. Another way to say it is we don't have a relationship. Not because I don't love you. Because you didn't choose to let me love you. And when I showed up, I can't... (laughs) We have to have a relationship. You didn't choose me. But I didn't choose bad things. That's that's the thing. A lot of us are going to get to the end of our lives and we're going to realize when we stand before the Lord that... We might not have chosen bad things, but we also might not have chosen him. And you know what we get? What we've chosen. There's also another parable, or actually a parable, where Jesus actually teaches and he says, the day is going to come when people will say to me, Lord, Lord. Didn't, they, even call, they will even call him Lord. Lord, Lord, did, didn't we like, cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? And Jesus will say again, I never knew you. Why? Because you didn't do the will of my Father in heaven. You didn't actually choose God. And so you have to get what you've actually chosen. Now, again, that can seem really harsh. And again, let's, let's clarify this, that when it comes down to it, it's like, would God actually let us choose that? That's the next question. Like, I don't believe God would send anyone to hell. Okay, he doesn't send anyone, but he lets us have what we've chosen. Someone can next say, well, yeah, but I don't believe he would actually let anyone choose that. I don't believe God would actually let anyone choose hell, especially if he loves them so much, he couldn't possibly allow them to choose hell. In fact, I have a... Um, Someone I know who was reading a book, and the book, the theory was this. The book was, at the end of one's life, when you stand before God, he reveals himself in all of his goodness, all of his beauty, all of his love, all of his glory, and at that moment, you can't help but choose him. Like, imagine if you actually saw God as God, you'd be like, well, heck to all the other stuff. Like, I'm going to you, God. And the theory of this book was that at the end of one's life, at that critical moment, God reveals himself, and you couldn't, you, he would overwhelm you with his love. The idea is that God is so good, at the end of your life, he'll overwhelm you with his goodness. He'll overwhelm you with his love. But I would say that actually, if God did that, if that's God's plan, that makes God into a monster. Let me say that again. If God's plan is at the end of your life or end of my life, no matter what we've chosen, he plans to reveal himself and overwhelm us with his love so that we can't help but love him, that means that this life is meaningless. That means because every choice you make at the moment of death is nothing. Every choice you've made for goodness or for evil, it doesn't matter. Because at the end, God's going to overwhelm all of them. Every, every battle you fought, those you married people, every time you were like, I don't feel like being faithful or loving to my spouse, but I'm going to, out of love for them and love for God, it doesn't matter. You might as well have chosen the other thing. Every time you made a sacrifice for one of your kids, or you made a sacrifice for one of your parents, or you made a sacrifice for anybody, it doesn't matter. You might have done the other thing. If at the end, God is over, going to overwhelm your choices. Even if he overwhelms you by love, that means nothing you choose matters. That means you actually don't matter. If there is no hell, you don't matter. If there's no hell, your life means nothing. And nothing you do means anything if there's no hell. You know what else? 
Um, that would mean this, this world was like a dream. Because, you know, in a dream, nothing you do matters, right? In a dream, anything you, nothing you choose actually make, makes a difference at all. And, and, and if, if this world is just a dream, this world's not merely a dream, it's a nightmare. Because we don't just float through life. You probably already know this. I don't care how old you are. You already probably know this. You don't just float through like, gentle dream of life. This would be a nightmare. And who's keeping us in this nightmare? This monster we call God. Think about all of the evil that happens on a daily, a moment-to-moment basis. Would that be natural disasters? Or would we actually do evil to each other? You know, as believers, as Catholics, we know why God allows evil to exist. For two reasons. One is because he knows he can bring a greater, greater good out of it. And secondly, because he respects our freedom. But if at the end of our lives, God is going to overwhelm our freedom by showing his love, that means he's forcing us to be in this life where it's just suffering. And he's allowing us to experience suffering to no purpose. If our choices ultimately aren't between heaven and hell, God is keeping us in this nightmare because he's a monster. I'm telling you this. The existence, the reality of hell is the only thing that prevents the notion that God is a monster. God is not a monster. He's a dad. He's not just a dad, he's a good dad. God is not just a dad, he's a good dad. What do good parents, what do good parents do? They teach their kids, they love their kids, and at some point they have to say, okay, now I'm not going to, imagine, <laughs> maybe some of you have these kind of parents. Uh, parents who like follow you around and say, nope, don't do that, nope, don't do that, nope, don't do that, nope, don't do that. And every time you try to do something, you're like, snap, snap your hand, you know? That's called being a dictator. <laughs> Some of you have parents who are like, listen, here are my rules. Now go. Here are the boundaries. Now, like, live. Here's the, don't go over there, don't go over there. But everything else is like, just go and live and joy. And that's a good dad. That is our good father. He's not a dictator. There are clear boundaries. But he doesn't force us. He respects our freedom. And he basically is saying, you matter, therefore, if you choose not me, it breaks my heart, but that's what I'll let you choose. You can actually choose hell. And at some point, your choices and my choices have to matter in order for God to be a good dad. So we can choose not God. That's hell. Amen? Okay, man, Father. Yeah, we're done with hell now because we're talking about heaven. Now, here's the thing. I think a lot of times when people read, uh, like Dante, you ever heard of Dante's Inferno? So everyone's like, Dante's Inferno, what's it like in hell? I want to find out. Well, Dante also has another book called Paradiso about heaven, and no one wants to read that one because it's like, I want to read about the hell thing. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about heaven. And yet, there's a man, he has a book called The Travel Guide to Heaven. It's just a great book because he, he, the premise of the whole book, he says, I love traveling. I love going on vacation. But the best part about going on vacation is planning for the trip. 
The best part of going on vacation is like getting excited about, okay, if we go to Kauai, here's what we can do, here's what we can do. If we go to the Grand Canyon, here's what we can see, here's what we can do. And then you do it. Half the fun is getting prepped for it, getting psyched for it. And he says, but the biggest trip we are all hoping to take is to heaven. And so few of us actually spend any time considering what might heaven be like. And yes, heaven is what um, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and has not even entered into our hearts, our imagination, what good God has for us. That's true about heaven. So whatever you think about heaven, it's way more than that. Because I think a lot of us think heaven is going to be boring. Like, I guess, I mean, it's better than hell. So I guess I'll choose heaven. It'll be fine. Because our image of heaven is what? It comes from comic strips. It's like you get to heaven, you have your white robe, you just kind of float around on clouds. And I guess that'd be fine for a couple days, like bouncing from cloud to cloud. And in fact, there was, a, there was a comic strip called The Far Side back in the day. Some of the adults know about this, maybe some teens. There was this side-by-side -side panel, and it was heaven and hell. And it was an angel saying, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. And then it was the devil saying to the guy in hell, welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. But sometimes we have this image that, like, heaven's just going to be kind of like, we just float around. It's just like, it's good thing we're not in hell. Wow, look at down there. That looks awful. Good thing we're not there. And then after, like, three hours, you're like, okay, <sighs> some excitement. You guys, heaven, heaven is nothing but dynamic, Dy dynamic, dynamism, excitement. Heaven is nothing but growth. Heaven is nothing but movement. Hell is you're locked in an ice cabinet. Hell, actually Dante describes this, the lowest circle of hell is Satan is frozen in ice, unmovable and unmoving, whereas heaven is constantly racing into joy. St. Paul says, all creation groans as it awaits redemption. What's that mean? That means, do you know, do you know this? Do you know that God's plan is to not only bring a new heaven, but a new earth? I'm going to say that again. God's plan is not just to redeem heaven, have a new heaven. But St. John says in the book of Revelation, I see a new earth. That means everything you love about earth is going to be earth, but redeemed earth. So like, think of like the most incredible waterfall you've ever seen. That will be not just incredible, it will be redeemed incredible. Think about the most incredible view, sunset, sunrise, moonscape, starscape, everything you've ever seen. That will be there. It will be redeemed. Think about the most incredible, think about armadillos, you guys. Now think about how creative God is. Let's go back to armadillos, because we can't leave the armadillos too quickly. The God who created armadillos. Do you think he's done creating? Like, do you think that heaven's going to be slightly less exciting than earth? Is, is heaven going to be living in the suburbs? No. The God who, like, thought up of armadillo, like, hey, why not? Bam. Is the same God who is not, he's infinite. And so heaven is Everything we love about earth times infinity. So it's, it's actually going to be a place. Redeemed creation. And you're going to be occupying that place. Why? Because when you die, here's a spoiler. When you die, you don't become angels. Sorry. You become better than angels. In fact, Scripture says you become higher than angels. In the resurrection of... So we say this every Sunday. I believe in the resurrection of the... Wow. Yeah, sorry, I sprung that on you. It's my bad. It starts with the B, ends with the Y, and the middle is odd. I believe in the resurrection of the body, exactly, which means that we believe that at some point in the future, every one of us gets our body back. Some of you are like, oh. 
your redeemed body back. Oh, <laughs> you get a redeemed body back. Which, like, what's that going to look like? We have no idea. Actually, we do have a really good idea because St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, actually, Jesus is the first fruits of our redemption. What his body is like is what your body will be like. So what's Jesus' body like? Well, pretty amazing. Um, it can't corrupt, can't die, can't get sick, can't get hurt anymore. So, okay, Superman, ready for that? Like, you can't get sick, you can't get hurt, you can't corrupt. Another thing Jesus' body is like, um, Jesus, so he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, 12 miles from Jerusalem, all of a sudden he's like, poof, gone. You'll be able to apparate. For real. Instantly later, he's where? He's in Jerusalem. You can teleport. At the end, anoint, this is down that line. This is not just like, and at the end, when Jesus ascends to heaven, what does he do? He flies up into the sky. What up? Your body will be able to do that. This is the resurrection of the body. So this is not like, oh, kind of boring, you know, float around in clouds, this little angel, this little ghost. Like, no. Fully embodied, resurrected body that can't die, can't corrupt, can't get sick, can't grow old, can teleport, can fly. It sounds almost like a dream, except there was a guy that actually happened to. His name is Jesus. He's a friend of mine. I can tell you about him later on. That's what your body's going to be like. So what's it like in heaven is nonstop joy, ever-increasing love. In fact, one of the biggest descriptions of heaven in the scriptures is a wedding feast. Think about <laughs> wedding feasts. Here's one thing I love about wedding feasts. Haven't you guys been to weddings before? Been to wedding receptions before? Has anyone here had fun at a wedding reception before? Okay, so who are the two kinds of people who are out on the dance floor not caring a lick about what anyone thinks of them? So he's like, he's like, me, me. I'll say, here are the two people, two kinds of people. Little kids and drunk people. But that, I mean, that's, the, that's it, right? But they're out on the dance floor, and what are they doing? They're just, like, here's a kid just spinning around and spinning around. Here's Uncle Joe just spinning around and spinning around. Because why? There's just a, such a sense of, I've, I've forgotten myself. I'm just living in this moment, and there's nothing but joy. Don't get drunk, kids. I'm saying, I'm saying it's self-forgetfulness. To be able to be in heaven, and I've forgotten myself, and I just love this moment, and I love this couple, and I love this family, and I love my God. Because the heart of heaven is not the fact you can fly. The heart of heaven is not the fact that there's a redeemed creation. The heart of heaven is not the fact that there's other people, although that's awesome, and it's a great, great wedding feast. The heart of heaven is who? It's not a what. It's a who, and what's his name? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Father. Yes. He's the heart of heaven, and that's the thing that's so crazy, is... If I don't want him, then I don't want heaven. If I don't want him, then I don't want heaven. And this actually is one of the questions, you know, we always get. And it's, you guys sent in some of your questions. I've been trying to at, answer them in the course of this talk. Um, but sometimes people ask the question, like, maybe you've seen the video I made about this. Will my, will my pet be in heaven? Maybe you've asked this question, um, and a lot of times when someone like is in second grade or whatever, they're younger, and you ask the question, will my pet be in heaven? And a lot of times a really good answer for a little kid is, listen, God loves you, and if you need Fluffy to be in heaven, for you to be happy in heaven, 
you'll have Fluffy. It's a great answer for a, for a child because it's true. In that sense that God loves you, and if you needed Fluffy in heaven to be happy in heaven, you'll have Fluffy. Or whatever your pet's name is. What you get to learn when you're older is that you won't need Fluffy in heaven to be happy in heaven. Because your heart will be so transformed that you love God, that you'll be so possessed by him and possessed of him that he's the only thing you want. That simply to have him will be the fulfillment of every one of your desires. Now, you might not be able to imagine that. I get that. Doesn't mean there's no one else in heaven. Doesn't mean you don't have Fluffy. Doesn't mean you can't fly. But it means that if my heart doesn't love him like that, then my heart's not ready for heaven. Does that make sense, that little part of that? Again, I'll say this again. If my heart doesn't love him like that, then my heart's not ready for heaven. That's why we have this thing, this belief, this doctrine, this dogma, this truth that we call purgatory. I know a lot of you have questions about purgatory, so I'm going to answer, try to answer some of those questions about purgatory. We're going to come back to it in just a second because a lot, of, a lot of the questions people wrote in, they said, well, where in the Bible doesn't use the word purgatory? So... Take that, priest. I'll take it. The Bible doesn't use the word purgatory, so we can't believe in purgatory. A couple things about that. One, the Bible also doesn't use the word trinity, but we all believe in the word trinity, or in the trinity, amen? Do all Christians believe in trinity? Yes. The Bible doesn't use the word incarnation, but do all Christians believe in the incarnation? Yes. The Bible doesn't clearly spell out that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but do all Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Yes. Here's another one. Uh, so we know that we can believe in concepts that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture because they're based in Scripture. Purgatory is one of those realities. But when people, whenever they say something like, well, where is that in the Bible? I always want to do, point to two pages in the Bible. The first page is really easy to find. And the first page is when you open up your Bible and you find, easy for you to find, this page right here in the table of contents. There's all the books of the New Testament. Someone says, well, you know, where's purgatory in the Bible? I say, okay, where's the table of contents in the Bible? And they say, it's in the front. Okay, fine. But where did we get this list? Where did we get the list of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because you know that there's also the Gospel of Peter, there's also the Gospel of Judas, there's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas. How come these four Gospels? There's the Acts of the Apostles, but there's also a book called The Teaching of the Apostles. How come Acts of the Apostles, but not Teaching of the Apostles? There's uh, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but there's also a, a letter called The Shepherd of Hermas. So how come the Shepherd of Hermas didn't get in there? There's one answer, and it was given to us, well, he said it really well. His name is St. Augustine in the fourth century, he said this, he said, the only reason I believe in the Gospels is because the Catholic Church told me I can believe in the Gospels. Where did you get this page? You got this page from the Catholic Church. So when someone is saying, where's that in the Bible? You'd actually have to ask the first question, well, where's that in the church? Because actually, someone says, wait, 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 for real? I say, uh-huh. Say, does the Bible say that? And I say, uh-huh. If you look at 1 Timothy, chapter 3, St. Paul is writing to Timothy. 
You know, especially if, if someone's saying, like, if you're talking to someone, you say, okay, I believe in the pillar and foundation of truth. Like, I believe that there is a pillar and foundation of truth. And every Christian believes there's a pillar and foundation of truth. Amen? And you ask your Christian who's not Catholic, you say, what do you believe is a pillar and foundation of truth? They might say, well, I don't know, maybe the Bible? And you say, okay, great. Here's the question. What does the Bible say is the pillar and foundation of truth? Here's what St. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I'm writing to you, Timothy, Although I hope to visit you soon, but if I should be delayed, you know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of truth. So the Bible says that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So the next time any of your friends will say something like, well, where's that in the Bible? You get to say, actually, the Bible says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So where's that in the church? But here's the thing. We have even more proof that this exists in the Bible. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what St. Paul says, St. Paul says this about purgatory. This is a Bible. There we go. <laughs> chapter 3, St. Paul says this. He says, person should be careful how he builds upon it. Because no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's there, namely Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of everything we do. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light. For the day will disclose it. The day means like the, the day of the Lord, day of judgment. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. So you're building a life. And St. Paul says you're building a non-foundation of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're building a foundation of Jesus. You can either build with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or you can build with hay and straw. But the day is going to come, and it will be revealed with fire. If the works that stands that someone built upon the foundation, if it stands, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's work is burned up, that person will suffer loss. They'll be saved, but only as through fire. That, reacting, that, that reality, that purgatory is actually God's mercy. Purgatory is actually God's mercy. I belong to Jesus, but when I die, my heart's not ready to love him like he deserves to be loved. So you'll still be saved, but only as through the purification process. That's what purgatory means. It means purification. So it'll be a purification process. So here's a clarification. Question, this is for the audience. If you get to purgatory, is there a chance you'll go to hell? Well done, no. If you go to purgatory, next stop is heaven. That's why it's so good, you guys. I cannot wait for purgatory. It's so good, it's so good. But here's why it's needed. Here's why purgatory is necessary. Um, because I know myself, if I were to die tonight, God willing, because of his grace, because of his, what he did on the cross, I believe I'm in relationship with him. But I know I don't love him like he deserves to be loved. I know my heart isn't that big. And so I know that before I got into God's presence, my heart would have to change. I'd have to love him like he deserves to be loved. Meaning I would need a purification of my love. Purgatory is where our love is purified. And it's actually meant to happen on this earth. I don't know if you knew this. 
But there, purgatory is like God's like, okay, plan B here. B's option, option, you know, number two. Because his plan is that he actually purifies your love here on this earth. Has anyone here ever had like really dry prayer? Okay, a couple of you. Great. Has anyone, had, has anyone here ever been like yawn to pray and it's like super, like it's super, um, you're super distracted. You're like getting nothing out of this. You ever had that happen? Yeah. Has, there, has you ever gone to prayer and it's like really, really tough to go to prayer? Awesome. Have you ever had a chance where you've gone to prayer and was like, this is awesome? Okay, great. Here's what God does. God is a good dad. So when we come to prayer a lot of times, like at a conference like this, he gives you graces. Like he gives you what we call consolations. So you go to pray and you're like, wow, God, that was awesome. Like the band helped and Jesus was right there in the Eucharist and like the people next to me and we, I got to experience this. And it was a grace. It was, I experienced a consolation. So I'm like, I want to go back to prayer. And maybe you go back to prayer and you have this consolation again. You go back to prayer and have the consolation again. This is so good. You go to prayer life. At some point, though, God has to take the consolation away. Why? Because if he didn't, we would all grow up to be spoiled brats. Moms and dads, you know this. A lot of us, we know this too. That a lot of times, you know, we love people because of how they make us feel. Or we love people because they've given us something. Parents, you know this, if, if like your kid does something good, you give them a reward of some sort. But at some point, you want them to be mature enough to do the thing just because it's the right thing. So the question is, okay, um, if I stop giving you the good thing, will you still choose me? If I stop giving you the reward, will you still choose to do the good thing? And in order for us to become mature, in order for us to become adults, God has to give us, he has to walk us through those dry times. He has to walk us through the desolation. He has to walk us through that time of distraction. Because if he didn't, it's not a test. It's training. It's not like God's like, okay, I'm going to take away my grace and let's see what they do. He's not taking away his grace. I'm going to take away my consolation and see what he does. How long? Like, ever see the, the TV show uh, Wipeout? Wipeout is the best. I wish it was still on. But it's like those things where they have to hang on to the bar and spin around and spin around. And like, and God's going, okay, I'm going to spin them. Put them on the spin cycle. Oh, they're going off. They're coming off right away. That's not what God wants. He's not testing you. It's training. He's training your heart to love him for his own sake. So he takes away the consolation. He lets you experience dryness because when you choose him in dryness, you're choosing him in a way you're loving him in a way that you couldn't love unless he took away the prize. It's kind of like, um, I'll just share the story with you. So before I went into the seminary, um, I was getting ready to get married to this gal. Didn't happen. Um, spoiler. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we broke up and I got to seminary and I was just still in love with her and I got ordained a deacon at one point and um, I went back home to my home parish and they invited me to preach at Christmas Eve. First time I ever went back to my hometown and preached at Christmas. And that night it was awesome. And it's just, I got to preach. And after mass, like my siblings and my family from friends were like, oh, you know, Deacon Mike, it's so good. He's really clear, your invocation. Like, it's really clear that God's calling you to this. And I'm like, wow, God, Jesus, thank you so much. And I'm like, Lord, thank you for making, calling me to be a deacon. Thank you for calling me to be a priest. I'm like, God, I'm so grateful for you. And it was awesome. So we went back from Mass to my parents' house, and we kind of did our normal, like, Christmas traditions. We had some snacks. went downstairs to open presents, and we're all hanging out, all my, you know, family. And at one point, I got up to, to go to another room, and there was a photo album sitting there, and I just flipped it open. And instantly, I was just like, oh. Because what I opened the book to was a bunch of photos 
of the scene I just left, but a few years before that. And in every one of those photos was Melissa. And I actually literally, I fell to the ground. Like I fell to my knees and I was just like, oh my gosh, she started crying. I was like, oh God, because I knew, I knew. Like if one thing was different in my life, I would walk out of that room and back into the room and she'd be sitting there. Maybe even like have one of our kids on her lap or something like this. I just like, I knew this. I said, God, oh my gosh, this hurts so much. If one thing was different, if you just hadn't called me to this, I'd walk out and she'd be right there. So, I mean, I just, you know, cried like a baby a little bit and then made myself presentable, like, okay. And <laughs> went back out into the room and you know, finished the night. And, and my, my brother goes up to his room with his wife and my sister goes up to the room with her husband. And I went up to my room with my sweaters. And, um, <laughs> and I, honestly, I knelt down next to my bed and I was just like, okay, Jesus, ow, this hurts. Like, just what is going on? This hurts a lot. Um, I don't know why this hurts so much. And it was one of the top 10 moments of grace in my life. Because at that moment, Jesus made it so clear. He said, you know, earlier tonight, you were so glad that you chose me. When everyone was saying, oh, how great you are, and getting, getting all this praise and getting all this stuff. But I want you to love me for me. I want you to choose me when it hurts. And I'm giving you a chance to choose me when your heart's breaking. And it was one of the most incredible gifts of God in my entire life. When he took away what felt good and he said, just, can you love me when it doesn't feel good? And that night, he just, he grew my heart just a little bit more. And this is what all those times of dryness, that's what all those times of desolation, that's what all those times of pain where we say, okay, there's no prize here, but Jesus, I choose you gives you a heart that actually can love him for him. And if we don't get to that point in our lives, God is so good, he lets us get to that point in purgatory where our love for him gets purified and we learn to love him for his own sake. Last thing. I think it's funny because some people are still afraid of purgatory. How long does it take? I don't know. Could, I mean, actually, it could even happen in a blink of an eye. I don't even know. Nobody knows. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wasn't even Catholic, and he's like, of course we believe in purgatory. He wasn't even Catholic. He's like, Our, we need purgatory. He's like, imagine going to the gates of heaven, and they're like, come on in, come in. And you're like, okay, I'm not dressed for this. Like, he's, like, he's like, your breath stinks, your hair is a mess, your clothes are filthy. And they're like, we don't care about that. Just we love you, come on in. And C.S. Lewis has the person say, all the same, can I just get cleaned up first? <laughs> Because purgatory means you've made it. And that's why I love telling this story. Last story. A little bit over time. Hope you don't mind. I have more jokes if you want. <laughs> so it's, that wasn't a joke. I just say. So um, years ago, uh, my family, we were in, in British Columbia. And uh, we were trying to get to Vancouver Airport. And it's my dad driving this rental van. And we're trying, I mean, we've been in the car for like, I don't know, three, four hours trying to get to the Vancouver airport. We couldn't find it. We found ourselves in downtown Vancouver, late for the flight. Spoiler, or a little hit, help, pro tip for you. If you ever find yourself in downtown Vancouver looking for the airport, it's not downtown. Just, there you go. We finally get to the airport, 
And uh, my mom and dad are like, get out of the van, just go, just go to the gate. And this is like pre-9-11, so like we just, you could run into an airport, run all the way through the, the airport, through the terminal. We got to the gate. It was after like, you know, hours and hours of like, are we going to make it? I don't think we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And we got to the gate as they were closing the door. And all the kids, there's six of us kids, we all ran in. We're like, yeah, we made it. You know, we didn't care about mom and dad. They're dropping off the rental van. Like, we did it. We're high fives and sitting down and stuff. Kind of funny thing. My mom and dad, they dropped off the rental car. They ran through the airport. They got to the gate. The door had already been closed. But my mom was like, my children are on that plane. So they opened the plane door again. And she didn't mention to them that we're all in our 20s and in the 30s. <laughs> But it was crazy. We got on the plane and, and sat down in our seats. It was like this, ah, we made it. No, we were still in Canada. But it was like, we know. The next time, even if we're stuck on this tarmac for four hours, the next time we get off this plane, we're going to be home. And that's, that's, that's what purgatory is. You make it to purgatory, which is a place of God's mercy. It's not discouragement. It's not like, it's not like well, I'm afraid of what's going to happen now. It's, ah, next stop, heaven. Next stop is home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have prepared a place for us. In your house, there are many dwelling places, and we know that you love us, and you desire all of us to come to the knowledge of your Son. You desire that all be saved. As the Scripture says, that, Father, you desire that all be saved. You don't want any one of the ones you love to be lost, and you love us all. But you also tell us, Lord Jesus, that we need to strive. That you've done the work for us, but we need to say yes. Help us to not be discouraged when we fail. Help us not be discouraged when striving gets overwhelming. Help us to not lose heart. Help us to never lose you. Help us to choose you, Lord God. God, we don't know this might be our last day. But if it is, I say yes to you. We say yes to you. And no longer, I don't want to say, my will be done. But God, you're such a good dad. I want to look at you with every breath, with every heartbeat, with every moment of my life. I want to say, thy will be done. So that I can spend eternity in joy and in love and in dynamic, eternal life, saying, thy will be done. All glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.